So I want to I want to just um, thank Kimberly and Murph for such a powerful conversation and um, engaging and um, your presentations and the stories that you shared were, you know, very powerful. And I want to thank you all for, for doing that. And um, we were at capacity, so we had a lot of people who were waiting in the wings to get in for someone to like mm -hmm. go out so that they could come in. So people were like coming in even when there were like 15 minutes left. Then we got a lot of messages. People were trying to get in. So, um, you know, just let folks know that this is recorded. So if they want to watch it later, it is, it will be available for them to watch it later. So um, not to be too disappointed. And um, I know you all are probably anxious to get started. And since there's only 30 minutes, um, I'm going to turn this over to Kimberly and Mark. Yeah, so Hi. this is your opportunity to, to, to share in the discussion. It would be nice for those who, um, as you're talking, I get it. If you don't want to be on camera, that's fine. Keep your camera off. I want you to do what keeps you safe. But if you're talking, it's helpful to see a face um, as we're having a discussion because this is supposed to be more of a discussion forum. So. Um, and if you want to put your question in the chat pot, you can. Um, otherwise, me and Murph will just start talking. And you, you don't want that. <laughs> <laughs> so, or unmute. We'd love for you to just unmute and ask any questions you have. Or if you just want to share a thought, anything will be fine. All right. Can we turn the closed caption on? Or oh, what Daniel says, we do have closed caption available. Okay. So closed caption is available for this session as well. Thank you, Daniel. So who's gonna, who's gonna kick this discussion off? With the first comment. So I see Wayona here. She is a um, RJI alum and so I can pick on her. Wayona, are you there, sweetie? I am. Hi, Kim. I'm just getting lunch. <laughs> Yes, you can eat lunch as we talk, but um, anything about the discussion that either stood out for you that was new, given that you've gone through the Institute, or that you just want to, to share with the group? I want you to I'm help so, kick this discussion off. All right. Oh, um, so I wasn't in the morning session. I went to another one. Um, so I don't know if I need that background, but I will say that being a part of the Institute, especially in the year 2020, <laughs> Um, was eye-opening. It really centered um, my way of looking at racial justice within the legal aid field and how we can make racial equity more priority than I think we've done in the past. Um, so I definitely got tools um, to have those conversations with other colleagues and to understand the intersectionality of all of the levels of racism, as well as the intersectionality of all of the different areas we practice in and how structural racism play into that um, and how considering the needs of the community is important in doing this work um, and doing that more than we have in the past. So I definitely learned a lot from the Institute um, and in networking and getting to know people um, and gaining other resources after. So I'm not sure that if that's what you're looking for, Kim, but I just jump in there. No, thank you, Ayanna. I appreciate those comments. Um, yeah, I was trying 
to get um, to, to either answer any questions people have or to continue the discussion from earlier today, because this is your forum. What are people excited about about race, race equity work and what seems challenging? Um, I can jump in, I guess. Um, so Murph, I know you're a native Western New Yorker. I am as well. Um, so Buffalo has been in the news lately about electing India Walton or uh, India Walton winning the primary for the mayor's election. Um, and so I've been excited about that. And I would love to hear uh, your thoughts kind of more generally about the role that you think electoral work can play in these fights. Yeah, I think it's really, uh, really important. And uh, I think there's been a lot of fear in legal aid about getting involved. Of course, we can't as nonprofits and as legal aid endorse or oppose candidates, but we can get involved in work that opens up positions for women and for people of color, particularly folks who are most disenfranchised. And so I think it's hugely important. We did a case in Yakima, Washington, uh, now, I think two years ago, the ACLU had done a case five years ago on the first Latinx woman, first Latinx person was elected to city council there. And it made a huge difference. And then there was pushback, of course, and they wanted to go to this strong mayor. Can this strong mayor system, which really reduced and diluted the power of the city council and basically a strong mayor is both city council. And there were, was a movement of white people to undo that. And so we got in and filed a couple of lawsuits um, to stop an initiative. And so we were uh, able to stop that from getting on the ballot. The next day after we filed the two lawsuits, they stopped. So I think there's ways to get in. I know that in LSC regulations, there are some restrictions around that, that kind of work. But I do think that there, there are um, ways to do that because who is in the room? Who is making the decisions? What does that look like? How can restricted programs get invited to the table? How can the folks and communities we work with be at the table to be part of the democratic process? And so if we're relying on our democratic institutions of the courts, of the legislature, of the initiative process, that laws are made in all kinds of ways. And so I think that People need to be in the room, whether it's an administrative law judge, does that person reflect our clients? Do they reflect the communities that they're serving? So I think that's a great question. I think that's a great area for growth. We had never done any kind of initiative law before, but the community came to us and said, we wanna stop this. We've testified, council did it anyway. We've organized, we've done everything we can. You need to sue them. And so we did. Does that answer your question? I think it's crucial. I think it's vital work. Yeah, that was great. Thank you. I miss Buffalo. It's a great place. Yeah, me too. Any other questions? Any other excitement, fears, concerns, hopes? Funny thing that happened. We could talk about food justice if people are eating. Who grew the food that you're eating? Where did that food come from? What's the real cost of it? How did it get to your plate? 
Well, that's a new one, Mark. Tell me a little bit more about food justice. <laughs> yeah, so who grew that? Was it a farm worker? Did they get paid minimum wage? Did they get overtime? Are they working in the fields? Are they in this country or another country? Are they an H-2A worker? Uh, mm. Who drove that? Who moved that? Who flew that food? How was it refrigerated? What is the environmental impact of the transportation of that food? How did it get to you? Did you have to go to it? Was it at a farmer's market? Was it from a cooperative? Was it from a supermarket? If that supermarket, are they unionized? What are all of the places that come to you? Is the person at risk of COVID who is growing or packing that food? Where was that food packed? Was it at a slaughterhouse? Was it at a fruit packing or a vegetable packing place? What are the conditions of the workforce there where you're growing that food? Is that person making a wage that they can support their, themselves and their family on? Uh, who's packaging it? How much does that packaging cost? What are the environmental impacts of that packaging to get the food to you? What are the chemicals that were used in growing that food? And so we've been trying to think more broadly about our farm worker advocacy and about food justice and just starting to ask those questions, not in a sense of being perfect or doing things, but just in a sense of curiosity. Wow. Um, I, I never even thought about it on those. You named so many different levels. It would be cool to like um, have like someone eating this item of food and then sort of do the whole backtracing to where it came from up to everything that goes into um, it hitting their plate and them eating it and all of the impact, everything in between sort of creates the cross. I mean, that could like spider out into so many different veins. That's that's cool um wow yeah that can be a whole uh, sort of awareness campaign because most times we just eat and we don't think about all of those everything that goes into the food that we're eating um i during covid i became a bit of a farmer um because we were growing tomatoes and cucumbers and lettuce and watermelon in my backyard and like all of the tomatoes bloomed at the same time or became right so I have so many tomatoes right now I started giving them to neighbors and everywhere I go I'm giving folks tomatoes and and tonight I'm making tomato soup <laughs> so um yeah and mine is all organic no no chemicals <laughs> I wouldn't even know what to put on them other than I just <laughs> but it's so easy like I never knew how easy it is to just grow your own food just bought some little plants at Lowe's and put them in the ground and didn't think much about them. They had to get the little cones to put over them and boom, there they were. It's, it's, it was really easy. One of my COVID um, hobbies. Nice. And I have a garden. We're going to talk about food during lunch. Unless somebody has a, a probing question. So there is a question in the chat box. Could you talk more? Could you talk about some of the unique challenges that come with working at the intersection of race and disability? Mm. That's an interesting one. And I'm going to start by saying that that's probably something you could answer for us if you work in that realm. Uh, the, the only area that I worked in around race and disabilities was children with special needs. 
And I just think based on the disability, they each will have a different, probably unique challenge and aspect. I can say children with disabilities um, in the school systems that I was working in. So it just depends. So children with uh, mental health issues, you know, those sort of disabilities you can't see outwardly, but exist internally were the most difficult for me as an advocate because the adults who were supposed to take care of these kids and recognize these issues sometimes completely ignored them. And in some instances, um, um, will outwardly say that they didn't exist. Like there were teachers who say, I don't believe in ADHD um, or I don't believe in ODD. Um, and, and, and would try and discipline the kids for behavior that was indicative of their disability. So that was a fight I was fighting. And it was interesting because I had to fight on so many different levels because the kids would get in trouble in school and then their first instinct is to send them to youth court. And so a lot of those cases ended up in youth court. So then I had to educate youth court judges and, and at some point even had to bring on the assistance of an expert, someone who could literally come to a youth court hearing and say, this is the way ADHD manifests itself in children. This child's behavior is indicative of that. And this is why, because my argument would be, why are we here? We shouldn't even be in youth court. You need to kick this out immediately, judge. And, and to make that argument, I literally had to have an expert come in and, and make those arguments. You do that again and again and again and again, and eventually they get it. And then the judges become advocates. And they're like, why is this here? You guys are supposed to be, is this child getting what he needs at school? Are you accommodating his needs? So when the judge started adopting the terms, then you know you sort of started, you can see the transition. So that was a challenge that I saw in working with kids with special needs. Um, but I'm not sure that's what you're asking. But I would ask you, Anna, what are some of the challenges that you've seen? if that's an area that you've worked with. Oh, sure, it's, I work for an organization. Oh, sorry, let me get on my camera. Give me a second, so. Yeah, just, just doing lunch as well, like others. Um, yeah. uh, that's, um, I work for an organization where that's our area of focus and there's, you know, sort of a term we throw around in the disability community is disability too white, you know? So it's really a lot of, um, a lot of the work that's being done around racial justice, there's sort of a need to import that into our, our talking about disability justice. And it, it raises a lot of unique challenges, you know, some of which Murph touched on earlier today. Um, and I think, um, you know, we do systemic work and it's, we're finding ways to apply that racial justice lens to work where it might not otherwise have been applied, but sometimes, uh, you know, it can be it can be challenging to move to get the community to think more broadly um, about about these concepts and understand how it's interrelated and when people are multiply marginalized. So I'd, I'd love any any of your your thoughts, Murph, if you have more. Yeah, that's a that's a gigantic topic. I think there's <laughs> huge things to unpack. This idea yeah. of disability and race. I think there's this idea of the embodiment of race as being somebody that can do something for someone who is white. Hang on, is that better? Can folks yeah, hear me? You can hear me. Okay, I think I was echoing. Um, and and I think the echoing may come from someone. Yeah, go ahead. There go Anna's computer. But go ahead. Um, Murph. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah, and so this idea that people of color are 
stronger, scarier, like all those racist tropes. And so this idea of disability and race intersecting and connecting, I think gives lots of folks uh, cognitive struggle or cognitive challenge because this, the face of disability is white. And in advocacy, my experience is that there's a trope of the white, usually the mom or the white parent being the hero for their disabled child. And this idea of pity and so turning that around and people with disabilities, people with mental health issues, physical disabilities, being, being from a point of strength. And then the underdiagnosed and overdiagnosed, Kim talked about this, of uh, people of color with mental health issues. And then for people of color, criminalizing disability in a way that doesn't happen with white adults or with white children. And this idea of I think the other piece of it is this idea of pity, of uh, moving from pity to empathy and moving from uh, like, I'm a person with a disability and yet I, uh, I am able-bodied um, and how the world works for me in a way that it doesn't work for people who are not. And really thinking about, really thinking about that intersexuality, intersectionality is important. I think it's a, a huge, uh, huge issue and we haven't solved it, but we do, um, we talk about it in the education context, particularly in juvenile detention. And that kid, we brought a case against King County, super liberal, King County's held out, oh, look, they have racial impact statements, they're doing all this terrific work. And yet they were throwing kids into solitary confinement for three, six, nine, 12 months at a time with no education. The first year we did a, a public disclosure request, it was 100% of the kids were black kids. Next, it was 80% of the kids were black kids and then other kids of color. And like there was one uh, uh, white young man in the, in the facility and none of them were getting any educational services and almost all of them had some form of learning disability. So there are huge intersection there. Yeah, and you touched on an interesting point around empathy, pity um, and what I found was, and what we tried to do was work with the teachers um, in terms of their response to students based on race as well. Um, who you tend to, to, to assist, who you had empathy for, who you had tolerance for, honestly. I, I just found that most of them just didn't even have the tolerance level. And sort of what Murph was touching on, especially with the black male students, if they um, had a mental health disability, then the teachers tend to be scared so they would always use this language around being fearful and scared and not wanting them in their classrooms versus um, white children who have the same disability or outcomes. They tend, tend to have empathy for them and wanted to get them more resources and, and assistance and more, how can we accommodate? Um, and even getting them to acknowledge that they looked at them differently and treated them differently because um, it's hard to get folks to, to admit that and to, and to change that behavior. And that's sort of where you start the whole discussion around bias and even sometimes just straight racism as it relates to that. Uh, almost 100% of the kids that we represented um, were children of color. Um, we, we didn't exclusively represent children of color, but what we found with white parents is they either had the means to, where they say hire a real attorney, because if you work with um, public interest or legal aid and they don't consider you real, um, or they, um, they garnered the kind of power to 
where the school would listen and be have more empathy for them either way. So money plays a huge role. I find who you are, um, your ability to have resources and access to um, to push back if necessary. And as such, the folks that we generally end up representing those that either didn't have the money, didn't have the power, um, and definitely didn't have the ability to, to push back against the educational system when these things occur. Yeah, and you were talking about putting them in solitary confinement and our youth court system, we challenged it as well. Um, they were just in detention, but they still weren't being educated. Or what they would do is they would bring their homework packs is what they called it. And it, the teachers would literally get their lessons for up to three months, drop them and just wanted them. They just have to figure it out, um, which is no education. So we were saying that's the equivalent of providing absolutely no education whatsoever. And there was another question in the chat, Palmer. Um, from Elizabeth, she's wondering if you could talk about some of the most common mistakes organizations make that are trying to engage in internal race equity transformation work. If you go back and do it again, what would you do differently? It's <laughs> a great I, question. Which mistake? I mean, can, let me count the ways. <laughs> I think one common mistake is um, when we want to start doing internal race equity work, we want to jump to the equity part, to the, I'm sorry, the diversity component of it, because it's so easy. Let's hire more people of color. And what happens is we haven't changed the culture. And so people will come to the space, the same things are happening. And what happens as a result is there, you tend to continue to have this turnover um, because you haven't changed the culture. So what I say, and that's the mistake that we made, um, I, I, what I would say, you have to clean, clean house first. You have to sort of get the internal straight before you invite people to the party. <laughs> you want to clean up the house a little bit. Um, otherwise, you just continue to have that same issue and can't understand why we keep, keep losing these folks. Um, Murph, you want to share some of, some of the... Um, yeah, I think some, trying... What would you do differently if you could go back? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the biggest mistake we made and other people is trying to do it on the cheap like trying to have it volunteer-based and not have it be anyone's specific job and just having like a volunteer equity team or a volunteer diversity um, panel or group or project without um, spending money. And so we realized that, I mean, we had that committee for decades and made some progress, but inevitably, inevitably the progress would stop and there was no and there was also nobody who was tasked with that work and so we had to see that work as just as important as accounting as just as important as our advocacy work as just as important as hr as paying our taxes and so we had to put resources towards it even on a shoestring budget and i think we if i could go back and do that much sooner i think that would be really important and i think the other part of it is uh, that it's not linear, that people use different skills at different times, depending where they're at in their journey. And so really, um, really understanding that and that in times of stress, I and the organization reverts back to old ways of doing things. And so there's this sort of, um, this sort of constant check. And the other thing I learned at RJI is that 
they they did this opportunity agenda training where people are ones, twos, threes, fours, and fives. Fives are on board. They're always going to love you. They're like with you no matter what. And then the ones that kind of, they hate it. They don't want to do it. And I thought you always tried to get the ones like, oh, we can't move forward because X is saying this about Y and doesn't want to do it and has a lot of power in the organization. And what I learned at the RJI at the Institute is ignore the ones. You can sort of talk to the twos, but really focus on the threes. The sort of twos and the threes focus on the people in the middle and work with the fours and the fives who are already champions to talk with the the twos and the threes and that we can move forward without the ones they might leave but we don't need them to move forward to do the work and they were given tremendous power in our organization to halt things and block things and stop things and we were always spending a lot of energy trying to get them to understand rather than supporting the threes fours and fives and really putting our energy there and that made a huge difference and i wish we had i had understood that much sooner that yeah, um, super, and being helpful, and being prepared to lose some, it just happens. And for us, we were a bit stuck, um, even ignoring the ones and moving forward with the work. There were some really powerful ones in our space, and when, I mean, there was just this one critical person, and when they when they did leave, it just opened the door for so much to completely change. One thing I found though is even. It's easy to say, oh, this person is holding up the work or, you know, designating folks. But even when they did leave and, and, and you know, our organization just got a woman of color as the CEO and everybody said, oh, we won. I mean, it is a success. I'm not downplaying the success of that to some extent. But the thing is, is, is in her struggle and, 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 and me talking with her is what I tell her is, is that we may have a new CEO and she's thinking I'm different. People should recognize that things should be differently. But the truth is the culture still exists and culture change takes time. And so just because we got a new C brand new CEO and certain people left, the culture still exists and people don't know how to operate any way yeah. other than the way they've been operating. So getting folks to just like reprogram or shift or even change can be hard um, when they've been doing that way for so long. So she has to be patient because she can, she may have to repeat it over and over and over again. Her actions will show it, but it's going to take a few years for people to signal that we are truly making a shift and, and then people will get on board. Everyone, I think folks will, will, will start shifting and moving with her, but she has to constantly repeat herself. The other thing is um, when it comes to caucusing, people want to jump to let's create an affinity space. Let's start caucusing, um, which is really popular. It can be really dangerous too, though, if you don't do it with a lot of thought, forethought. You have to be clear about why we're creating affinity spaces or caucusing, what the purpose of it is, if there are any expectations of it. Like some people just caucus and they just simply there to support each other, checking in, support each other, colleagues, boom. Other spaces want to work. Like what, what's the point of us meeting? Why are we still here? You know, why are we meeting every month? You know, and if and if it's not done in a thoughtful way, and there even even intentionality, if you're just supporting each other, it falls off really quickly. Folks stop attending, people lose interest, and at some point, you may also have to say, "All right, we've been coxing for six months. Do we want to continue to do this? It's okay to say we might need to discontinue it and come back." Or there may be some groups that want to continue to cox and others aren't. Um, but that can be dangerous too because um, sometimes the the white coxing space they 
they just over it, <laughs> you know, and they don't want to do it anymore. And so, I mean, it's, it's, it can be very challenging is my, my, my point. What we found is you, sometimes you need facilitators for these spaces. Um, you have to bring people from the outside in, but you definitely need programming. Like in each meeting, you need to be clear around how do we support our, our colleagues of color? What work should we be doing to improve our relationships with each other, but re relationships with our colleagues of color? What does this mean for the work that we do as an organization? Every meeting should have a clear point of discussion and somebody has got to be facilitating and, um, and making sure everyone sort of stays on point and they're doing the necessary work. So those are the spaces that, that we had the most challenges in and continue to have challenges in. Some of our uh, caucusing groups are wonderful. They just moved right along doing great work and others are still just very much stuck. Um, so it can be yeah a yeah that's great are you guys still practicing mark yeah you know it took the white people it took us a long time to get it together to really understand like people were opposed to it and said oh the white people said oh it's suspect for all of us to be in a room together why is it this white only space and of course, it's open to everyone, but it's for white people to do that work. And what was pointed out and what we point out to each other is think of your last picnic or your family gathering and when, how many all white spaces are you in? What about the last courtroom you were in? What does that look like? And so really had to start at some really basic pieces of it. Like, what does it mean to talk to other white people about race? And how are we accountable? How are we calling in people or calling out people? Where are we standing up or not standing up? And we went through the People's Institute and talked about racial hierarchy and talked about that we can't, that one of the big issues for white people is being accountable for other white people and saying, I'm not like that person, I'm different, I'm better, is not helpful in being anti-racist. And so how do we take on that responsibility as white people? How do we uh, accept that we are not so different from the outwardly racist person, that we are of the same beneficiary of these systems, whether we talk about it in the, the, the crass or unacceptable way that other people talk about it, it still exists, it's still there. So we're still working through stuff. We've been talking a lot about, um, our accountability to the collective and uh, what, how we still benefit from the laws and systems and the wealth gap. That's been huge, how white people benefit and how have more wealth and more money. And then what do we do with it? How do we go beyond guilt? Where do we give back? Where do we let go of some of our wealth? What do we really need? How much do we really need? And that fear of not having enough, rather than think, oh, I have all these resources, the message is, oh, I should be afraid that someone's going to take this from me, or I should be afraid of losing it, or I'm going to be homeless if I don't hoard this stuff. So the conversation for us has been ongoing. Yeah, and it really speaks to the larger narrative in the nation around capitalism. And I was having a discussion with someone in one of the, one of the, the gentlemen from Legal Aid. They said, why do I have to give anything to anyone? So it's, it's about ideas and the narratives that we believe. And he grew up in a space that, you know, I got mine, get yours. You got to get your own. And as such, don't, can't even understand what it looks like to share power and resources with others, like clueless. Um, so we really have to continue to change the narrative and talk about it in that way and get away from these capitalistic ideas that what, what you, you kill, what you eat. 
right? When you eat what you kill. I always mix these things up. <laughs> Danielle, we still good or where are we on time? I don't want to. We, we are, we are over time now. So by three minutes. Okay. <laughs> so, okay. okay. Um, yeah. So, um, well, the only thing that we have in the chat is just uh, thank yous. And I just want to agree with what was said. Thanks for the earlier discussion and the one now. It's been very um, enlightening I, to myself and, and hopefully to a lot of other people. And um, just a reminder to continue these conversations outside of this space. Yeah, the work continues. Thank you guys. Those of you who share questions and those of you who just sat around and listen, yeah. we appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thank Bye. you. Bye-bye, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.